If a parent locks their child in a small concrete box, isolated for days on end, that is a crime. They'll be charged with child abuse. But at Midwest Academy in Keokuk, Iowa, this was the norm. Parents paid the private, for-profit company roughly five to eight grand a month to quote-unquote help their child. The Academy claimed it provided struggling teens with a safe, structured, and disciplined environment. But to the teens who actually went there, the Academy was similar to a prison you'd find in hell. According to a 2009 federal lawsuit, former residents of the Academy claimed they were strip-searched, cavity-searched, denied medicine, food, toilets and showers, forced to exercise until they vomited or fainted, denied medical attention and sleep, and isolated from their families. The case would be dismissed two years later because it wasn't filed in the proper jurisdiction, but their testimonies still stand. A number of teens wanted to escape this program so desperately, they attempted to take their own lives. Despite all of this, Midwest Academy fell under the radar, like a lot of troubled teen schools do. It was unlicensed, therefore, unregulated, and not monitored by the state of Iowa. It was up to the employees, who were untrained and unqualified, to take care of hundreds of children. Some were worse than others when it came to perpetuating cruel punishment and abuse. After 13 years of operation, all the allegations and reports finally came to a head on January 28, 2016. Investigators from 11 different agencies, including the FBI, raided Midwest Academy. Search warrants were executed at both the campus in Keokuk and the Midwest Treatment Center in Montrose. The warrants stemmed from complaints alleging a staff member had sexually assaulted a resident of the academy. The school was ordered immediately to be shut down, with parents given just 24 hours to come pick up their children, or they'd be placed in foster care. The entire 60-person staff was laid off, and roughly 90 children were sent home or to a shelter provided by the Department of Human Services. Some employees, as well as 28 students, were interviewed, and officials asked anyone with information about the investigation to please come forward. Two and a half weeks later, court records revealed more details. The director and owner of Midwest Academy is at the center of this investigation, 37-year-old Benjamin Train. He's suspected of sexually abusing a 17-year-old student, and the possible charges include child endangerment, fraudulent practices, ongoing criminal conduct, child pornography, and sexual abuse. Computers, cell phones, and other electronics were seized, as well as trace evidence involving bodily fluids for DNA. Credit cards were also taken to determine if they were used to purchase items for female students. The firing of a female staff member is apparently what triggered the raid. After reporting a case of sexual assault to Midwest Academy officials, she was let go the following day. Two weeks after the raid, the local sheriff's department revealed there had been 80 calls to police from Midwest Academy within just the past three years. Five of those calls alleged instances of sexual abuse. Additionally, the Department of Human Services had identified 19 founded abuse cases, meaning 19 cases suggested some type of abuse occurred. It would take over a year for investigators to compile a case and finally arrest Midwest Academy's owner, Ben Train. In September of 2017, he was charged with third-degree sexual abuse 
sexual exploitation, and child endangerment. But before we go over the outcome of Train's two-week trial, I want to talk about how he got his start at Midwest Academy and how we really got to this point, as well as read you survivor testimonies so you get an idea of how students really live there. So Ben Train officially got his start with the troubled teens industry at Cross Creek in 1996. If you listened two episodes ago to the troubled teen industry episode, then you probably remember Robert Litchfield, the founder of WWASP, the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. If you didn't listen to that episode, just know that Litchfield's company had ties with at least 26 troubled teen boarding schools and generated roughly $90 million from WWASP, which no longer exists as a company because they were being sued so often by residents and parents alleging horrific things about the schools. So it's really not a surprise that Midwest Academy starts with Litchfield. In 2002, he purchased property in Keokuk for half a million dollars. The following year, Midwest Academy was opened. It consisted of eight buildings, including residence halls, a gymnasium, a metal shop, and an auditorium. Even though Robert Litchfield bought and opened Midwest, the ownership would eventually fall into the hands of Ben Train. But before Train would have sole ownership, a man named Brian Vifanua was the director, and a lot of reports state Brian was the one to found Midwest Academy. Just to be clear though, it's hard to find accurate info regarding that because WWASP likes to keep things very much under wraps. And I need to talk about Brian for a bit to show how every person in charge at these troubled teen schools, these WWASP schools, has a horrific history that went unchecked for decades. So like Ben Train, Brian got his start at Litchfield's Cross Creek School in Laverkin, Utah. In 1994, he opened his own school in Samoa, called Paradise Cove. The name is misleading, though. Paradise Cove is one of the most notorious WWASP programs. Children were systematically tortured, assaulted, sexually abused, and more. The program was an all-male facility that could house up to 450 boys, and tuition was around $30,000 a year. And keep in mind, this is around the 90s, so today that would be even more. Instead of having gates to prevent escapes, the facility was surrounded by a cliff that functioned as a natural wall. The only way to bring in necessary supplies to the facility, like food, water, etc., students would have to carry it down a single, small path that ran the side of the cliff face. Employees would not do this. The imprisoned boys were forced to do everything necessary to keep themselves alive and keep the place running. Boys slept on thin mats and huts, without walls. Lights stayed on throughout the night to deter escapees, even though it attracted plenty of mosquitoes. They were forced and only allowed to wear flip-flops as well, which were quickly torn apart by the coral beaches they were forced to do hard labor on. Paradise Cove showers didn't have hot water, and over 200 boys had to share three to five toilets. These toilets would only be flushed one to three times a week, so the putrid smell of human waste was constantly in the air. The sanitary conditions were so horrible, some survivors claimed they developed ringworm, scabies, and lice. In 1996, a 16-year-old boy named Stanley was taken against his will to Paradise Cove. During his 11-month stay, he never received any counseling. Actually, the only method of therapy that existed at the facility was attack therapy groups which they called encounter groups. 
A survivor described this by saying, quote, They just circle you up, and they all start yelling at you at the same time, and say how shitty of a person you were. Things like, you're worthless, you're pathetic, you're a piece of shit, you're a compulsive liar, nobody likes you, end quote. At Paradise Cove, Stanley witnessed kids being punched, kicked, and thrown. For small infractions such as chewing food with your mouth open, talking back to staff, or failing a test, Stanley and other kids would be thrown in the dungeon. There, they'd be forced to sit on a cement floor for 12 hours a day while audio tapes pumped through the speakers. Those tapes would be describing the lives of Beethoven, Genghis Khan, or Socrates. According to Stanley, kids that tried to flee the dungeon or got in trouble while inside were forced into much smaller, isolated cells for weeks at a time. Sometimes staff would put duct tape over their mouths, hogtie them, or put them in handcuffs. In 1998, 48 Hours covered Paradise Cove on an episode called Tough Love. Brian Vaifanua is featured in this documentary several times. I'll link the full episode down below in the episode description if you want to watch. The same year that this episode was released, the U.S. State Department investigated the facility and issued a statement advising parents not to send their children there. The year in which Paradise Cove was finally shut down is not certain. Some reports state it was in 2000, but some survivors claim it was still in operation two years later. I could keep rambling on about the horrific tales surrounding Paradise Cove, but this episode is mainly going to be about Ben Train and Midwest Academy. Again, Brian Vaifanua was the owner and director of Paradise Cove, alongside his brother. Directly after its closure, Brian relocated to Cross Creek to continue his work with WWASP. Yes, even after the Samoan authorities shut down this school, citing abuse, he was still allowed to work with children in the United States. It's unbelievable. Shortly after that, Brian founded Midwest Academy, which was, of course, owned by Robert Litchfield's corporation. Brian's official title was director, but after a brief period of time, Brian left Midwest Academy and went to another troubled teen school. It's unknown why this happened. And just to close this little portion off about Brian, survivors who have suffered various traumas because of Brian have made sure he isn't working with children ever again. Around 2013, he was working as a high school basketball coach until he got fired thanks to the help of survivors who were imprisoned at Paradise Cove. They raised concerns to school officials until he was finally let go. What Brian Vaifanua is doing now is unknown, but hopefully he's not working anywhere near children. I wanted to tell y'all about Brian's history to show that this is the kind of person that Robert Litchfield saw fit to direct hundreds of children at Midwest Academy, and the man this episode is mainly about is just as bad. So now I'm going to jump back into the horrors of Midwest Academy, a program overseen by Ben Train, and at one point before that, overseen by Brian Vaifanua. So after Midwest was shut down, six former students were interviewed by the Associated Press to describe their horrible conditions. Survivor testimony is really all we have because teen help programs like these lie on their brochures to parents about what actually happens there and legal action against these programs are really difficult to come by, they're not really talked about in the news, and the cases are most often dropped. All of these details come from people who attended the academy between 2008 right up until its closure in 2016. According to Sean McCarthy and others, students were routinely kept in small concrete isolation boxes for days or weeks. They wouldn't be let out unless they sat in a specific posture for 24 hours. 
Motivational recordings were pumped into the boxes through the speakers, and staff watched the students through surveillance cameras. This system of pumping motivational recordings through speakers is just like what occurred at Paradise Cove. Emily Beeman, who was 17 at the time, stated, quote, You spend your time pounding your head against the wall. You can't sleep because there is a lot of noise. A lot of girls like to scream in there. You basically look forward to bathroom breaks and those moments when you can get out of your box. End quote. After weeks of isolation, Emily only managed to get out after cutting herself with a bottle cap and begging emergency responders to get her out. Lauren Snyder, also 17, experienced a similar situation. In 2015, she begged to get out of isolation after a staff member turned up the audio so loud that the speakers blew. Instead of shutting them off, staff left on an ear-piercing screeching noise that came from the broken speakers. Because of this, Lauren attempted suicide by tying a sock around her neck and was sent to a psychiatric hospital the following day. James Ferris was a former student at Midwest and now works as a nursing assistant. On his 18th birthday, he woke up in an isolation box. Because he was technically 18 now, Midwest Academy could no longer legally hold him. James had to scream for hours in order to get staff to release him. He stated the program uses seclusion preemptively and as a punitive measure. It's illegal in public healthcare settings, yet somehow Midwest Academy got away with it. Rachel Atkinson was put in isolation for refusing to run during gym class. Over the course of just two weeks, she dropped 20 pounds. Rachel told the Associated Press she was in contact with the FBI and informed them of another girl who attempted suicide by tying a bra strap around her neck. She stated, quote, It's like torture. You think it's never going to end. You think, how can a human do this to another person? End quote. Now I'm going to read direct testimony from Midwest Academy survivors submitted to unsilenced.org. This first one is by an anonymous individual, and I'm going to read this one first because it explains the way the program is structured through a level-slash-point system. This anonymous person is only identified as M. Quote, When I was 14 years old, I struggled immensely. I had issues with anxiety, suicidal ideation, outbursts, self-injury, as well as drug abuse. I was your typical troubled teen, not going to school, running away, being hospitalized, etc. My therapist recommended my parents send me to Midwest Academy in Keokuk, Iowa. That is when my story with WWASP and the troubled teen industry began. I joined my new quote-unquote family. I could not say hello to anyone. I could not even make eye contact with anyone, or that would result in a consequence. I had to walk in line structure, pivoting at corners, and had two quote-unquote upper levels holding on to me at all times. They gave me a handbook, and I had to copy it word for word. Instead of starting school or adjusting to my new surroundings, I sat there and cried as I looked at all the rules. There were hundreds of rules. I had a breakdown in my first week there. I was already struggling with anxiety, and my depression was coming in full force. I did not have anyone to talk to, no one to relate to. I was brought out to talk to some higher-level staff and another student. I was so confused about what was going on and got no compassion. I was told I was trying to manipulate to go home. I was told my parents were not going to come get me until I graduated from the program. I was told I needed to suck it up and start working on my program. They threatened to take me to OSS or out-of-school suspension. 
aka solitary confinement. I did not want to do that, so I pushed down my feelings and joined my quote-unquote family again. MWA was based on a point system. Level 2 was 200 points. You typically were a bunk leader and had a bunk buddy that you could recommend consequences to, so you could progress in the program. If not, you got consequences. As my program progressed, I was at level 3 mainly the whole time. I was also given the title dorm leader and wore a medal. That meant I recommended everyone in my room consequences, or else I would get one. Being an upper level, you got the most privileges. You could not move up in levels unless you completed seminars. They happened every couple of months. For any small thing, you could be chosen out of a seminar, thus leading to you having to retake it and making your journey going home a lot further away. We did homework for the seminars. There were six levels. Getting points was very difficult, as one consequence could take away all your daily points. A cat two, as they called it. Cat threes, you missed two days of points. Cat fours, you were dropped a level and to the minimum amount of points for that level. Cat fives, and you were back to level one, zero points. We did self-reflections every night, and if the staff did not agree with your rating, your points were taken away. If you were a level four or above, and you got negative 50 points in a week, you were put on probation, meaning you had to be a level two for a week. They could also put you on a situational probation. I managed to get to level four after nine months of being there, and that's when everything went downhill for me. My depression was back. It was my usual depression month. I had weeks of no consequences and good behavior. I graduated from my seminars. I was a robot. I was brainwashed. I was doing what I had to do to get home. Then I fell asleep during school. Cat three. 50 points gone and put on probation. Then I fell asleep again. Another cat three. And again. I trended out. I was put on life buddy as I felt extremely suicidal, but no one would contact my psychiatrist. They told me I was doing it as a manipulation to go home. I had to sleep in the hallways. Then I self-injured. I was sent to OSS. OSS was terrifying. I was suicidal, and all I could look at were bright concrete walls. They shut the huge metal door on me, so I was alone with my thoughts. I was fed PB&J and skim milk three times a day. I had to sit in a 24-hour structure with no movement or talking to get out of OSS. I then had to write an essay on how I was going to change my behaviors to get out. I did not know what to do. I did not know what to say. I would cry, and my 24 hours would start all over again. I remember acting out and trying to harm myself, because this is all I knew to do when things got rough for me. I was never taught coping skills during the seminars. I was restrained by the female staff, and when they did not want to deal with me anymore, they had males restrain me. I am a sexual assault survivor, so having males touch me was not easy. I acted out even more. Then I got sent to the boys' side of OSS, which was a concrete tile room, with one light bulb hanging down. I ended up ripping up the tile and slitting my wrists, attempting suicide. I was taken to the ER to get stitches. That day, a staff member told me I was not going to cut deep enough. I almost did. During my stay in OSS, I ended up having to go to a psych unit due to them not being properly trained to handle my condition. How? How is a therapeutic boarding school not trained to help people in crisis? I went back to Midwest Academy, being carried out of the psych unit as I screamed that I did not want to go back, and they promised me a therapy visit with my parents. To prepare for that visit, I wrote down every reason why I needed a different treatment. 
Little did I know, my parents were about to pull me and send me to a residential treatment facility that was accredited. The staff would not leave us alone that entire visit, so my parents could not tell me. They left, and I felt hopeless. Until a couple of days later, I was pulled. I'm diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, chronic PTSD, anxiety, and various other issues. After the program, I still struggled with drug use. I still have issues with sharing my feelings, as I feel like they do not matter. It has been a long road to recovery, and I'm still on it. I have a good relationship with my family, but I still feel very misunderstood when it comes to my time at Midwest Academy. So, this next testimony comes from a girl named Chelsea. Midwest Academy, in essence, is a control camp. It is very much like a prison. You have no rights as a human being. You are treated like an animal. We're herded into rooms like goats and sheep, and we're not allowed to sit on furniture. We sit on the floor in a crowded room, not allowed to lean, talk, or do anything. This was not a very stimulating nor healthy environment to be in. I was abused while I was at Midwest Academy, and sadly, I saw many of my fellow program buddies abused as well. Girls were sent into solitary confinement, and they would come out with extensive gashes, cuts, and carvings all over their bodies. Let it be known, these girls were watched as they harmed themselves. There's a camera in a room called OSS, in which may be solitary confinement at times. The room is smaller than a closet, and it's painted entirely white. Girls are sent there for misbehaving. Sometimes they leave the door open, but other times they shut the door for long periods of time. There are no chairs or anything. It's an empty room. We are fed three times a day, with one peanut butter and jelly sandwich with pickles and fruit each meal, with a glass of milk. There is a staff member assigned to watch them, as well as two upper levels. You had to sit in structure for 24 hours to get out. This meant sitting without moving or talking, or even itching yourself. You had to ask permission to itch. If you break structure, you have to start over. My first time as a level one, I was in and out of OSS from October to November of 2011. I am proud of the fight I put up for myself as a level one. I literally couldn't handle the ridicule of being a new level one on the facility. I was outraged at the oppression of this school and clearly voiced my opinions. This got me hundreds of consequences as a level one. I refused to fill out most of them. I dropped 11 times in a matter of two months. I was targeted and picked on by upper levels for so much as glancing at myself in the mirror or accidentally saying the wrong number in line structure. But not all upper levels were power trippers. There were some good upper levels who actually supported me as a level one and helped me get up there. During October of 2011, I was escorted yet again to OSS for refusing to do gym. Miss Shasta and Mr. James were telling me as I laid on the floor of OSS that I had to change into shorts and a t-shirt. Miss Shasta explicitly threatened that she would have Mr. James forcefully take my clothes off and put me in a shorts and a t-shirt. On Miss Shasta's part, this is a prime example of the way this place is run. It's about fear tactics and control methods. The well-being of the students does not come first. The structure does. When the winter cold came in November 2011, I shivered in a ball in OSS, wearing only a t-shirt and shorts because they refused to give me proper clothing to keep me warm. Meanwhile, the staff members sat there cozy in their sweaters and pants, telling me to get over it. This is another example that shows staff comfort or a priority over the students. Although it is the students' parents who pay tens of thousands of dollars for their kids to be there, not the staff members. When I was a level 3 dorm leader in January of 2012, I was put in OSS for crying too much because I was waking up the other girls. 
I was in serious physical pain, and they would not take me to the hospital, as I requested many times over the course of several weeks. The pain got worse as time went on and nothing was done about it. I was on antipsychotics at the time. Nurse Colleen forgot to get my refill on medication. The pain worsened when my medication ran out, and they put me in OSS and closed the door at night. I had a psychotic episode without my medication. The claustrophobia of being locked in a closet-sized room worsened the anxiety. I lost touch with reality, and I was talking to myself profusely because no one would talk to me. I begged for them to open my door as I panicked, but the night staff turned their heads away from me, ignored me, and walked out of the room. I had a mental breakdown and told them I was going to hurt myself if they didn't open the door. I would lie on the floor for hours on end, screaming and crying in pain. In February of March 2012, Nurse Colleen forgot to get a refill on my medication again. The physical pain worsened, and I went to OSS. The fear of being ignored and locked up in solitary confinement was overwhelming. I started losing touch with reality, but this time I really lost control. At the height of my panic, I would beg them to open my door. The night staff would simply ignore me and walk out of the room as I writhed from the emotional and physical agony. The last time this happened, I couldn't take it, after Miss Tanya closed my door and locked it again. I told her that I was going to try to kill myself if they didn't talk to me, or at least open my door. She, as well as the night staff, watched me through the window as I slammed my head against the metal door eight times. I collapsed to the floor soon after. They never took measures to restrain me like they are supposed to. They were not qualified to handle mental illness. They took away my pillow and sheets, but other than that, they made no efforts to stop me from harming myself. I went through the worst hardship of my life while I served time in OSS. I am a personal victim. My story is truth, and there are many more who have had the same experience. If I was a parent and I loved my child and I wanted what was best for them, I would not send them to Midwest Academy or any other boarding school like this. This is coming from a former student, and I've never seen worse treatment of adolescents in my life. It happened to me, it's happened to many others, and I'm sure it will happen to more. I turned 18 in the program in May of 2012. I stayed five months after my birthday to finish high school and get level four. I did both of those things and I am very proud of it. Soon after I got level four, I dropped to level one. I decided to take my exit plan when my parents told me they wouldn't take me home. The exit plan that Midwest Academy so often encourages and promotes is sending your child to a homeless shelter. And that is where I went. I was given a garbage bag for my things, courtesy of Midwest Academy, and the bag started to rip, so I asked for another one. Going to that homeless shelter was one of the best decisions I have ever made in my life. A former student and I both stayed there because we both took our exit plans. I felt so relieved to be out of the confines of that school. I took pleasure in my stay at the homeless shelter. I loved it because it was freedom. I had been dreading going there. I expected the worst and I got the best. I thought it was so ironic that the homeless shelter was much more hospitable and livable than the program. If I could go back, I would much rather live in that homeless shelter for a year than at Midwest Academy, hands down. I have been living a free person for almost six months now, and I could not be happier. I have a job and I'm going to college. I love being back with my family where I'm supposed to be. I hope this helps anyone who would consider sending their child away. If you or a former student have witnessed or experienced abuse at Midwest Academy, don't be afraid to speak up about it because I did. Now we're going to move on to Ben Train's trial. On September 7, 2017, Ben Train was booked into the Lee County Jail on three charges, third-degree sex abuse, child endangerment with no injury, and sexual exploitation of a child by a counselor. His bond was set at $500,000. A month later, this would be lowered to $50,000, which a local posted on his behalf. 
Three months later, Train's trial began in Keokuk, Iowa. In the prosecution's opening statement, they emphasized to the jury that Ben Train was in complete and total control at Midwest Academy as the director. He wrote the rules and policies. He was the authority on who was hired and who was fired. Staff lived in apartments on the Academy's campus. Train had control of everything and everyone. They also argued that because of his position, he had the trust of parents and the students that were held there. Train would sometimes give them treats, special privileges, and bend the rules he created. And with this power came great responsibility, but Ben Train was reckless. An assistant Iowa Attorney General, Denise Timmons, stated, quote, The evidence will show that the trust was abused and that the power was abused, and it was the kids who had to pay the price for it. Parents were told their children would be cared for, kept safe, given a good education, and taught discipline. Students were told that the program was tough, but that you would be better for going through it. For some students, that might have been true, and it was a positive experience. For other students, it was definitely not true. There was no positive experience. Timmons went on to describe the rigid structure of MWA's program, which are the levels that you've already heard about in the survivor testimonies I read. She explained to the jury how most students didn't make it past level one, which had the most restrictions in place. Level ones couldn't eat food condiments like ketchup, mustard, or even have dressing on their salads. That had to be earned. Level ones also couldn't talk to other level ones, or even the staff. There were only a few specific people they could talk to. Timmons also focused on the OSS, or isolation rooms, the most in her opening statement. She described the OSS rooms as being 6 by 8 feet in size, or 1.8 by 2.4 meters. Once a student was inside the small concrete structure, they couldn't even get out if they tried. There were no door handles on the inside. The lights are on 24-7, and a camera is always watching, and the students are always expected to sit in structure, meaning they had to have their legs extended and their arms at their sides. They couldn't move or talk for 24 hours. If they were caught doing the smallest of things, like scratching their leg without asking, the 24 hours would restart. If a student complied with the strict rules, they could earn a chair and a mattress. Timmons stated, quote, If you were bad and you were sitting quietly, or you were yelling or throwing a fit because you wanted to get out, you wouldn't get a mattress. You would sleep on the concrete floor if you slept at all. End quote. The meals in OSS were different as well. Most often, students would be fed a peanut butter and jelly sandwich three times a day with a carton of milk. For the kids who were really acting out in the staff's eyes, they would receive special meals, foods that they specifically said that they disliked. It was just another punishment to make their lives miserable. So this case mainly focused on three different victims who are identified only by their initials. The accusations of AH and BV were used to bring the child endangerment charges because of their significant time spent in isolation rooms. K.S. was the student that Ben Train sexually abused, and that's where the two additional charges came from, third-degree sex abuse and sexual exploitation. Let's take a look at the lesser charges first and what the first two students experienced. Also, apparently one of these victims testified during the trial, but I couldn't find those transcripts, so my knowledge is limited about the details. But the gist is, prosecutors said Train endangered their emotional, physical, and mental health. To make this go a little smoother, I'm going to give the victims a random name as an alias. Let's call A.H. just Adam. Adam was 12 years old when he arrived at Midwest Academy in May of 2014. 
he had been diagnosed with anxiety, depression, and oppositional defiant disorder. A psychiatrist recommended sending Adam to Midwest after his treatment at a psychiatric hospital was labeled unsuccessful. After a year, Adam was removed from the academy. He had dropped from 120 to 90 pounds, over 30 pounds gone, or 13 kilograms. Timmons let the jury know that they won't hear in the evidence that Ben Train was dragging students down the hall, putting them in the isolation room and closing the door. But what they will hear is that these were Train's rules, his policies, his procedures, and the employees were expected to follow them. He was in charge. B.V. was 12 years old when he entered Midwest Academy, just a few months after Adam, and we're just going to refer to him as Ben. Ben spent 133 days in the isolation room. Only 77 days were spent not in isolation. By the time he left the program in March of 2015, Ben had dropped from 115 to 89 pounds, or 40 kilos. That same month, the Department of Human Services received a tip that students were being held in MWA isolation rooms to the detriment of their health. The FBI had already received a similar tip and started working with DHS to coordinate an investigation. Two months prior to the start of that investigation, 16-year-old K.S. arrived at Midwest Academy, and I'm just going to call her Carly. And I want to reiterate that I don't know these victims' names, I'm just giving them a generic alias, and this isn't their real names. The accusations brought forward by Carly is what the case most heavily centered on, and because Train was also serving as a counselor, this brought the additional charge of sexual exploitation. A few days into the trial, Carly took the witness stand for two hours to testify against her abuser. She explained that she was sent to Midwest by her adoptive parents because she got in trouble at home and would run away. Early on in her stay, she noticed that Train started showing more interest in her than the other girls. He started buying her gifts, like candy and shampoo. The price of the gifts gradually increased to things like shoes, earrings, makeup, and leggings. On her 17th birthday, Train brought Carly and another female student to Quincy, Illinois. He bought them dinner, then took them to Sam's Club to buy supplies for the academy. He also took them to the mall, specifically Victoria's Secret, where he purchased lingerie for the other student. Carly told the jury, quote, his attention to me started to increase. Other girls noticed it and began commenting on it to me. One asked me, why are you getting so much attention from Mr. Ben? He is treating you like a princess, end quote. A few weeks into her time at Midwest, Carly said Train began making suggestive remarks to her. Within a few months, the physical contact started. At first, it was just hugs, but eventually it led to digital, oral, and vaginal penetration. And I didn't know what digital penetration was until I looked it up, so here's the definition if you're like me and have no idea. Digital penetration is just one form of sexual penetration. It's a sexual act that involves penetrating the vagina or anus with one or more fingers. Carly testified that these acts happened once at Train's home and other times on the Academy's campus. She said all of this was against her will and that during every incident, there was always one student in the vicinity. However, Train always managed to get Carly alone long enough so he could sexually assault her in some way. The final assault occurred on the second floor of the academy in the seminar room. Carly stated this was where Ben Train forcefully raped her and appeared to be recording or photographing the incident with a camera. Afterwards, he made her clean herself off Carly was asked by the prosecution if she yelled or screamed during the attack. A court reporter wrote that she looked at the floor before giving her response softly. Quote, 
No. I just closed my eyes and let him do what he was going to do. I didn't open my eyes until he got off of me. End quote. She was then asked why she didn't say anything to anyone for the months these attacks were occurring. Carly responded, quote, I don't know why. I just couldn't. I didn't want him doing to me what he did, but I just didn't say anything. He had a lot of power, and he was looked highly upon by other students. He was popular. End quote. I want to point out it's reported that while Carly is on the witness stand testifying about this abuse, which is hard enough in itself, Ben Train was apparently staring her down intently and would occasionally whisper to his defense lawyer while she spoke, supposedly to intimidate her. So after the last incident, which occurred in November of 2015, Carly confided in Cheyenne Jared, a staff member at MWA. And now we're going to switch over to the testimony by this employee, who basically was the reason the world came crashing down on Ben Train. Cheyenne was 20 years old when she was hired at MWA in early 2015. She worked as a female supervisor for the girls at night. She was there to make sure they didn't harm themselves or try to escape. In November of that year, Carly came to Cheyenne and reported the sexual abuse by Train. She told a jury she reported the allegations to DHS immediately, describing the incidents in as much detail as possible, and named Ben Train as the abuser. Cheyenne stated, When it was brought up to the public that I reported to DHS, I was fired a few days later. After the school was raided and shut down, Cheyenne filed a lawsuit against the school, claiming she was fired for being a whistleblower. In May of 2017, before Train's trial, a judge sided with her and ordered the school to pay Cheyenne $750,000. Train was apparently named in the original lawsuit, but his name was eventually removed, so the suit was just against the school, not him. And this was a default judgment, because apparently no one showed up in court to represent Midwest Academy. After digging deeper into this, I found some new information that clarifies ownership of the Academy. The owner of the building and surrounding land is Midwest Twister, and the owner of that company is, shockingly, Robert Litchfield. But in court documents, Litchfield said his company had nothing to do with the school's ownership, management, operation, or finances. Terrain testified, however, that after the raid and shutdown of the school, he had to sign over all of the assets to Midwest Twister and another company associated with Litchfield. So, connecting all of this info I found, it seems like Robert Litchfield was using people like Ben Train as a scapegoat when it comes to lawsuits against WWASP schools. Like, he would let these directors run the schools based on his policies, but once there was legal trouble, he would retake ownership and claim he wasn't liable. Meanwhile, he's raking in a portion of the profits, millions of dollars, and his hands are clean. Really shady shit. Anyways, back to Ben Train's trial and Cheyenne's testimony of what occurred the night Carly reported the abuse. In late November of 2015, Carly was placed on suicide watch and was forced to sleep in the school's hallway so staff could keep watch. Cheyenne recalled, quote, I asked if she was okay, and she said no. She was really scared and said Mr. Ben had done things. Cheyenne stated that Carly was very emotional, with tears in her eyes, and that if she needed to talk to someone, Carly should talk to one of the counselors. Cheyenne then talked to the shift leader about this, who then tried to ask Carly what was going on. However, Carly didn't trust the shift leader and didn't want to tell her. Cheyenne encouraged Carly to instead write it down, which she did. Cheyenne stated, quote, I did not want to read it. I gave it back to her. I did not want to know. And staff is not supposed to read any personal journals. Soon later, Cheyenne was called into a meeting with other staff members on her day off. 
She assumed the meeting was about the allegations made by Carly, leading her to report what she heard in this meeting to Iowa's DHS on December 1st. She said she did that because she didn't want the school to try to cover it up. Elizabeth Webster, an employee of DHS, received that call and testified at the trial. Elizabeth said an hour after Cheyenne made the report, a second report came in about the same allegation from a different female staff member, and this report was about Carly as well. Carly was removed from the school that same day per a court order and taken to the sheriff's office to be interviewed by Elizabeth. She stated that Carly didn't talk a lot the first day she met her, and when initially interviewed, Carly testified that she denied Train had done anything inappropriate. She stated, quote, I didn't want to tell anybody because I didn't want to be forced to leave the school. I had a lot of friends there. It was a family. I didn't want to leave. I just wanted him to stop doing what he was doing to me. Carly eventually mentioned the sexual abuse and identified Ben Train as her attacker. FBI officer Tom Pearson interviewed Ben Train for six hours during the day of the raid of MWA in January of 2016. This is what he testified during the trial about the info he received from Train. 77 students were enrolled at the time for five grand a month. 300 students have been there in the past, so enrollment was declining. Train told the officer he felt that the nation should follow his school system because of the success he had had. He also said he was a family representative for four students, including Carly, the student alleging sexual abuse. According to prior testimony, these representatives were in charge of letting the family of students know how they were doing. It also meant Train could spend more time with Carly and the other three students than usual. In this interview, he denied the accusations of sexual abuse to the officer. When asked why some of the video cameras in the academy were off, Train said he kept catching employees stealing and didn't want to deal with it anymore, which makes no sense. It sounds more like Ben wanted areas in the school without surveillance, so he could do as he pleased. Joe Listina, an investigator with Iowa's DCI, testified as well. He talks about the evidence found that was used to charge Ben Train. During the seize, officers collected Train's phone and password. The jury was shown nine photos the officers found. Those photos were of Carly and several other students. In most of those pictures taken by Train, students were apparently hiding their face from the camera. And BreakingCodeSilence.org reported that some of these students appeared to be sleeping. When asked about DNA, Lestina said little DNA evidence was found related to Train or Carly, and that this was not out of the ordinary, because it's more common to not find DNA than it is to find DNA in cases like this. However, seminal fluid was found on a carpet in front of the camera monitors in one of the offices. BreakingCodeSilence.org reported that this was found in Train's office, but there wasn't enough evidence to test for DNA. Either way, it meant that someone was masturbating while watching these children through cameras. Here are some other concerning things that came out during testimony from authorities and DHS employees testifying. Two students were removed from the school and interviewed. What stood out was how hungry one of them was. He kept asking for food and opening the office's refrigerator, looking for food. Both students had spent more than 50% of their time at MWA in isolation. The same DHS woman that interviewed these students spotted Ben Train at the mall. This happened on December 22, 2015. The woman was shopping at Victoria's Secret when she saw Train with who appeared to be a group of female students from Midwest Academy. She immediately texted her coworkers about it because Train had told her just a couple weeks before then that he would be avoiding alone time with female students. 
The raid also turned up a survey for students to take, titled Sexual Activity Survey 2015. Two former students who were 14 at the time said they both took these surveys and participated in what was called body image therapy. One of them said they were an upper-level student at the time. One task for that level included supervising the OSS rooms with staff. On one occasion, she had to clean blood off the walls when another student cut herself, then drew a picture of her house in that blood. That same student recalled how Train described different sex positions to her and other underage girls. If you're wondering what this body image therapy is all about, this is what court documents describe. Ben Train participated in individual group counseling sessions with female students, which included body image therapy. This involved Train having the female students undress and stand in front of the mirror to discuss what aspects of their body they didn't like or felt uncomfortable with. He further engaged in sexually explicit conversations with female students through verbal conversation and written questionnaires and had physical contact with some of the female students. These acts were done for the purpose of sexual arousal, gratification, and attempted grooming." End quote. According to one former student of MWA, the sexual activity surveys asked questions like whether or not they masturbated or had past sexual experiences, and even asked them to describe their own sexual fantasies. And keep in mind these girls are as young as 12, their children being given these grotesque questionnaires and apparently asked to strip for Ben Train, who is nearing his 40s. Also, I forgot to mention this, but Train is also married and a father of five children, who at the time were infants to about seven years old. When Ben Train took the stand at his trial, he testified for three and a half hours. And to sum up everything he said, Basically, he argued that all of these allegations had been blown out of proportion and that he had never had any sexual contact with any students. On December 22, 2017, the jury of nine men and three women deliberated for over two hours. After nine days of trial, they came back with a verdict. They found Ben Train guilty on all three counts, child endangerment, sexual exploitation of a child by a counselor, an assault with intent to commit sexual abuse. This third count was initially third-degree sexual abuse, but the jury found him guilty on a lesser charge. This dropped the possible sentence from around 17 years down to just nine years. Until the judge sentenced him, Train was out on bond, but required to stay in the state of Iowa, away from his family in Idaho. His sentencing was postponed until May 2018, and a month before this, Train's lawyer filed documents requesting a new trial. Two victims gave their impact statements before Ben Train was sentenced. One was the mother of a 12-year-old boy that was locked in isolation, and the other was K.S., who I've been referring to as Carly. This is her statement to Train, the judge, and the entire court. Judge Cruz, I am not quite sure where to begin with this. The way that I have been impacted by the things that Ben Train did to me are numerous and have not lessened throughout this entire process. My time since the academy has been spent trying to understand why he chose me, attempting to protect myself from shame, from the same thing happening again in the future, and not just trying to cope and live with what this has done to me. I've spent the past two years trying to figure out what I did to make Ben decide to do this to me. Was it how I spoke to him? The way I looked at him? The way I acted? I've gone over again and again what I did that made him think it was okay to do what he did, and what I could do to make sure that no one ever has the urge to do these things to me again. 
I've lost confidence in my own thoughts and opinions, rarely contributing to conversations unless directly spoken to me. Even then, when asked a question that has to do with my specific opinion, I typically shrug and say, I'm not sure, I don't really care. I do this always thinking, what if I say something that shows what he's done? What if I say something to someone that shows what has been done to me? Or worse, shows someone else that I am vulnerable and gives them an opportunity to take advantage of me just like Ben did. Thinking the way I looked possibly had something to do with the decision to hurt me, I went on a diet so restrictive that I've lost over 40 pounds since my time at the academy, causing my 5 foot 7 inch frame to drop from nearly 127 pounds to nearly 85. I started small and now have blown out of control. Now I am at least certain that no man will look at me the same way that Ben did, and no man will have the same urges that Ben did that led him to hurt me. I now also think poorly of many people who are authority figures. I am suspicious of anyone that appears to have a nice, happy family. I am suspicious of nearly every adult male that I meet, regardless of the circumstances for which under we meet. When I was in school, I made sure not to be too friendly or to engage much with my male teachers, fearing that anything I did could be misinterpreted as a sign to make the relationship inappropriate. At work, I don't speak to my male coworkers about anything even remotely personal, not even something as simple as discussing how my weekend went, because I'm concerned that any friendly behavior could be taken the wrong way and used against me the same way that Ben used my trust and exploited it. I look down on anyone that appears to be a good husband, father, and so forth, because I know exactly how Ben appeared to the people around him and what he portrayed and continues to attempt to portray. He makes himself out to be a family man, one who loves and cares deeply for all the children and teenagers, and a man who loves his family, his church, and helping others. The reality is, is that Ben enjoys teenagers like me, because it gave him the perfect setting to take advantage of them, while simultaneously, seemingly everyone was praising him for taking on the task of healing troubled teens. I no longer feel comfortable in my own thoughts, whether it be day or night. During the day, no matter what I may be doing, I often have times where I completely pause, stare off into space, and think about the things that Ben did to me. These thoughts are intruding and nearly uncontrollable and extremely upsetting when they do come up. The only way I can cope with them is by shoving them back down inside of me as far as I can. I'll occasionally get looks from my coworkers and be questioned on what I was thinking about. I always give a small smile and try to laugh it off saying, oh nothing, in order to not arouse any concern or suspicion. At night, I rarely sleep more than four hours. Any sleep I do get is typically restless, riddled with nightmares so vivid upon me waking up. I will regularly take several seconds to realize that I'm not back in my bunk at Midwest Academy. After waking up from a nightmare, I'll often force myself to stay awake for the rest of the night, fearing that if I do fall back asleep, I'll fall right back into another nightmare about the academy where Ben is hurting me, and there's absolutely nothing I can do to stop it. On the outside, I may appear to have mostly recovered from my time spent at Midwest Academy and from the abuse I suffered at the hands of Ben. I have had two jobs to support myself. I live on my own. I take care of myself. I am able to attempt to engage with friends. I am able to go out in the world. But none of this is done with confidence. I don't value my own thoughts, and I don't even trust my own intuition. I thought Ben was a good guy, and it turned out to be so horribly wrong. How could I ever trust myself again? Even throughout this process, and even with the people who have helped me most, I found myself questioning their intentions. Are they being nice to me so they can hurt me in the future once they've completely gained my trust? I hate this part of myself, and I hate that Ben has created this massive loss of trust in me. I want to believe that there are good people in the world. I want to believe that there are people who would never think of taking advantage of me. And I want to have faith in people. But because of what Ben did to me, it is impossible. I never want another young girl or anyone to feel the way I do. 
I never want someone to question their intuition or lose confidence in themselves and their own thoughts. I never want someone to be scared to fall asleep at night. I never want someone to fear being beautiful because they think a man will exploit them. I never want Ben to hurt someone in the way he hurt me, causing them the same pain he caused me, which is why I'm asking that you please give him the strongest sentence possible. It will show him that what he did was wrong. He can't get away with all the sick things that he has done. It will also hopefully prevent him from repeating these offenses when he is free. It will give me some peace of mind to know that he isn't out doing whatever he pleases to whoever he pleases. It will send a message to him and to everyone like him that this type of behavior is absolutely unacceptable. Thank you for taking my statement into your consideration. Sincerely, KX. Also, I'm not sure why the last initial was changed, but that is how she signed off, so I guess her last name has been changed. Ben Train was allowed to give a statement as well. He argued that Midwest Academy was doing God's work, that it was a place for kids that are mentally unstable that need this help. He said, quote, That's why we're seeing so many of these kids shooting up schools, killing friends, stabbing, drug overdoses, because there isn't enough places like Midwest Academy. Train specifically brought up a former student that went on to kill his parents, then take his own life. Quote, He was taken out of our school and then went and did that a few months later. End quote. I'm not going to go into this story on this episode, but I will be making a short episode about this for Patreon members, and I'll also be talking about other kids who attended Paradise Cove that went on to murder their parents slash guardians, only because I shockingly came upon three cases total, and I wasn't even digging for them, which was shocking to see. So during Ben Train's statement, he also said that Carly was a liar and had made prior false abuse claims about her adoptive parents. He also said, quote, She knew the system. She knew exactly going to these places with the sexual abuse of what to say. She told me what grooming was. She knew all of this. She told me that if I ever did anything she didn't like, she would make allegations like this. She told other girls she was going to do this. By the way, Carly did say she was sexually abused by her adoptive parents, but you'll learn the outcome of that in a little bit. So the judge didn't like Train's statement at all, and that really came out in the sentencing. Judge Cruz ordered Ben Train to serve nine years in prison, the maximum sentence. In addition to that, he'll be supervised by the court for 10 years after his release. He has to register as a sex offender and submit a sample for DNA profiling. Judge Cruz stated, It is of the utmost serious nature, your acts against very troubled and vulnerable young people, one that merits serious consequences. This is done while they trusted you and were totally reliant on you. This is something that cannot be tolerated. It was a very difficult decision. I did take into account your family very significantly. I just wish you had. Nothing you said here today gives the court any confidence that things will change for you. Your statement here today, you switched the tables. People who are victims are now victimizing you, and you are re-victimizing them with your statements today. End quote. Even though Train was officially sentenced, his case was still being appealed to Iowa's Supreme Court. It could take them 18 months to come to a decision, and Train was allowed out on bond and now allowed to leave the state of Iowa. In 2019, Ben Train won a small battle. The Iowa Supreme Court ordered the case back to district court for a hearing. This was to determine if the allegations of abuse made by Carly against her adoptive parents were false. If false allegations were made, Train would get a new trial. The deposition took place in April of 2021 due to pandemic delays. Carly said the abuse started at eight years old by her adoptive father. The abuse was physical and sexual. 
Social workers became involved several times, but they did nothing to help Carly. Her adoptive parents were questioned at this deposition. Ultimately, the court decided that Carly's statements were more convincing than her adoptive parents. Because of that, the original sentence was immediately imposed and Ben Train was ordered to be at the jail within 30 days. However, unfortunately, he appealed the verdict again, a month later in September of 2021. Five months later, the prosecution appealed to the courts, arguing Train should not be allowed to appeal this final time, and that was filed in February of this year. So, as for Ben Train's whereabouts right now, I'm not really sure. That's the last update I could find, and I'm pretty sure he's still out on bond, waiting for this final decision to come down. The odds aren't in his favor, though, and he will probably wind up back in jail, serving his full sentence. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Finding all this info was pretty difficult, but I thought it was an important story to share. So many children are affected by these quote-unquote therapeutic boarding schools, and this topic has only recently started getting attention of mainstream media and the general public, like people like myself. I saw a couple days ago, actually, the New York Times did a big story on the troubled teen industry, and Paris Hilton and other survivors were interviewed, so y'all should definitely check that out, and I'll link it below. And before I go, I want to give a special shout-out to the new Patreon members, Penelope Gaffney, Bree, Katie Krauser, Bailey Terrell, Alexandria Legg, Michelina, and Mark. Thank you all so much for becoming Patreon members, and everyone, don't forget to tune in next Thursday for another episode. I'm thinking cults for the next episode.